When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Survivor Season 40 is here with 20 past champions returning for winners at war. Survivor fans know that this is the best Survivor season in years, and we're breaking it all down after each episode on Rob Has a Podcast. I'm two-time Survivor Rob Sestrino, host of Rob Has a Podcast, and we've got recaps, interviews with your favorite former players, and a community of Survivor fans from all around the world. So come check out Rob Has a Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Podcast One app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Daniel, we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is one that I've been looking forward to for a long time because I've known about the book for a long time, but I wanted to have on longtime friend of the show, I believe second ever guest on the show, Ethan Sherwood Strauss, to talk about his new book, The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. I wanted to have him on to talk about the book, you know, even when he was writing it, but I also wanted to read the entire thing first so we could really talk about it in some substance without spoiling too much stuff, but it's great. Um, have a wonderful conversation with him about that, and of course, knowing the two of us, you're not surprised that we went into other topics as well. This episode is brought to you by Keeps. Go to keeps.com slash realgm to receive your first month of treatment for free. And, of course, you can check out Ethan's book as well. I'll talk about that at the end of the podcast as well. And, of course, Ethan and I talk about it on it too. But hope you really enjoy the episode. I always love talking with Ethan, especially about this. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be talking to uh, a human and, and no less a friend of mine. It's, it's good times out here. It is. And it was it was funny. One of the first things I did um, during the shelter in place was, was read your book. And it was it was there was some sort of comfort there, like reading reading. I'm very familiar with your work. You know, it's in it's in line with that. I think people who like your writing will will connect with it immediately. And I I kind of teased you with the idea that I think it was honestly in the second or third chapter of the book, I came up with an analogy. And I was like, Oh, I'll wait until the podcast to throw it to Ethan. And it was that when I was reading the second or third chapter, I think it was the one after the one on 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 Lake Up and and Goober buying the team. The analogy that I came up with was about three quarters of the way through Scarface, a character who's not super involved in the rest of it, uh, Doctor Gutierrez, is becomes and basically goes on TV and lays out what you've seen in the whole movie and also lays <laughs> things for the and the characters and all the other like some of the other characters like watching it like you see so so watching it and. It's a different perspective on it. It kind of lays things out differently, and that's really what I thought this book was. Was it was a a a, a kind of hindsight, but also in, in to a degree like contemporaneous viewing of something that a lot of people know well, but will learn a lot from. So wait, am I Doctor Gutierrez or you somebody are. else? Oh, you I'm Doctor Gutierrez. Wow, this is incredible. Okay, no, I yeah. love this. This is fantastic. I, I will. I will not spoil Scarface for those who don't watch it. But Gutierrez ends up factoring. I mean, a little they've bit had a this. little. They've, they've had a little bit of time to watch Scarface. I would. I mean, say. I didn't you know, see it until exactly. I didn't see it until college. So, um, huh. but but do you get what I'm going from the idea of like just kind of because I think what yeah. the thing that was so striking to me about the book was that it it goes through people and moments that a lot of people will know, 
but in a different way, and I think helps paint a more, to me, a more accurate and more compelling picture of what happened. Well, yeah, and I think some of that was maybe a function of just wanting to differentiate the way I'm writing for The Athletic for the book, because I didn't want to rob Peter to pay Paul, and I didn't want it to all blend together in my head. And occasionally I'll go first person with articles in The Athletic. Um, when I, you know, smoked weed with Don Nelson, for instance, there's no other way to do that particular article. Um, but a lot of times it's analysis and it's at a distance. And I thought to myself, um, I am a little bit wary of being a character in this, but I guess Kevin Durant kind of dragged me into it a little bit. And this at least allows me to know when I am writing the book versus when I am writing an article for The Athletic, even though the first chapter um, is a lot of uh, something that we did run in The Athletic, which is kind of, you know, happens in these books a lot of the time. I think Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, it was his New Yorker article that serves as the first chapter. But for the rest of the book, um, I really needed to be able to um, know when I was writing it versus when I was doing everything else. And I think the first person emphasis helped helped accomplish that for me. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I think this ties in also with the uh, the the sneaker wars chapter in the book, which I think is is you know it connects with some of the work that you've done before, but also is in a different way. About to me, one of the emphasis of the victory machine was thinking about people as like uh, players and GMs and everything like that as human beings, but not in the same way that even like I, I I've talked about how when LeBron James chose Miami, it forced me to think about free agency differently and like what people prioritize. This had some of that, of course, too, but it was also just the elements that make things less predictable. So, I mean, the yeah. ownership transition process for the Warriors is a great example of that. Of course, the stuff with Kevin Durant is an example of that. But really, throughout the book, there are all these human elements that add complexity and add elements that were important in terms of explaining what actually happened, but generally were not a part of the explanation as things occurred. Yeah, I, I've always, maybe not always, but for a long time, had a mentality of the fans are watching the TV show and assuming the TV show is the entire TV show. And here's what I mean. Like you watch it, I don't know, a sitcom, Friends. It's easy, perhaps, to fall under the illusion that Friends is uh, Ross, Rachel. Who are the other characters? So I wasn't a big Friends fan. Joey. Phoebe. God, how do I know that? And then how Chandler, do I know that? Chandler and Monica. It was the biggest show yeah, when, yeah, we were, yeah. when we were in formative years, my friend. I mean, that, yes, that, that, the that's big, the way things happen. But obviously, if you were on the set of Friends, you would see an entire Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory world of people uh, coming together to make Friends a thing. You know, whether it's the writers, the set designers, um, and I'm not an expert at how sitcoms are made, but I would just imagine that there's a massive world behind it. And then even behind those scenes, there are negotiations and agents and CAA, and um, it's an entire subculture. And so I think fans like getting there. I think they like getting pulled into that world. They just aren't necessarily presented with it. They are presented with the TV show is the TV show is the TV show. And I like to take them, if I can, onto the set and in some of the rooms where the planning happens. And it's just such a bigger universe than what we encounter. And to me, a fascinating one. It's got elements of Hollywood in it and elements of big business. And of course, of course, with sports, sports can only be a business if they are thought to be bigger than the business. So there is something pure at the heart of it, but also red of tooth and claw and quite Darwinian. So 
I love the subculture. Um, I love talking about it and thinking about it and writing about it, obviously. Right. And there are a lot of different elements in order to tell those things. And I think part of the reason why the book works, and it was it was interesting, like, I, I mean, at some point, I think we'll talk about the comparison between the two different projects we did that overlap to an extent. But on getting a little bit of hindsight with this, because there's certain, unless you have really good sourcing, there are certain parts of various stories that take a little bit of time to unravel. I think like your the story you wrote for, um, I believe that was ESPN on the the how Nike lost Steph Curry and all those like you can't get that contemporaneously. It takes a little bit of time for the people who know those things to be willing to share them. And so yep. I think that this was it was an interesting thing here where sometimes those sorts of stories can only end up hitting the public like 10 years after everything happened or 20 or whatever but a lot of these are you know two to three years old but still have enough of the enough of the context that wasn't necessarily there originally yeah i I feel as though like when you a lot of stake to rest uh with nba stories two to three years uh is enough to get the proper perspective it's fun to revisit things from even even farther away and the statute of limitations is out but it just seems as though at least with the the nike under armor story when i originally wrote it um in espn uh, that was i don't know two to three years afterwards and at that point you could tell it and then the next arc of that story, which is in my book, is really the fall because Under Armour has the spectacular rise alongside Steph, and then they have a fall afterwards. And in part, the fall is, I think, uh, precipitated by Steph Curry making this decision for team over company. You know, by allowing um, and helping to facilitate Kevin Durant coming to the Warriors. That's great for the Warriors, obviously. Um, it's great for Nike, uh, as we find out, but it is not great for Curry, and that's an interesting situation considering that it's an open question as to who his primary employer is. We like to think of it as his primary employer is the Golden State Warriors. Your primary employer is the basketball team. But maybe that's a lie because Michael Jordan makes more money in a year, even today, than all his NBA team salary combined over the course of his entire career. I think if we were looking at it in retrospect, Michael Jordan's primary employer is Nike. LeBron James uh, has a lifetime deal with Nike. He's already worn a bunch of different jerseys. He might wear a different jersey again, but he will not be wearing different shoes. So it's, uh, and I think Warriors fans should probably be thankful for it that Steph said, you know what? Under Armour, whatever they want is whatever they want, and he's going to facilitate winning championships, and that was the choice. But the important question is, was it good for Anta? <laughs> As Clay Thompson once asked. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that it was uh, neutral for Anta. It was probably good for Anta. I put the I Warriors think it was, more I think it was probably good for them. But yeah, I, I think that it's the shoe dynamic of this story is is so fascinating because it's also something that for a lot of us, I mean, I'm somebody with a complicated web of employers, but they're not usually pushing and pulling against each other other than periodically for my time. But it's something that can be hard to connect with for people, but it's also important to understand it because as you said, these allegiances at certain points, you know, like for example, it's it's entirely possible, if not probable, that Nike never told Kevin Durant, go to X market, go to X team. 
but it is entirely possible that entities within that made it known what their preferences would be in certain situations, or maybe so, like you know, not saying go here, but maybe these sorts of places would be better than that sort of thing. And it, it kept- wouldn't it wouldn't be so hard for Lynn Merritt to have a phone conversation or a discussion. Lynn Merritt is big at Nike. I'm not saying this happened. I'm just saying that it wouldn't be so difficult for him to say, Kevin, if you come here. It's going to be amazing for you. You know, it's going to be incredible. You're going to be the man. You're going to be our biggest guy. It's not so inconceivable that such a conversation would happen. And hey, that's 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 really uh, putting some pressure on the Ouija board to go in a certain direction. Exactly, and that is there is nothing. Even if let's say they put a huge financial incentive, and I mean generally contractually they are allowed to do this. You could say, hey, an extra ten million dollars if you go to New York, L.A. or whatever. Like they could do something like that if they wanted to, and I don't think they did in this case. And then the player is free to accept or reject that based just like they would for anything else. Just like you brought up movies, an actor or actress can turn down a job for whatever reason. Maybe they think it's bad for their career, or there's something else they like better, or whatever else they're going to do. But one of the things that I find so interesting about the Durant story is how and i mean it's it's also funny given my relationship with parts of the durant story that so many different elements were pulling in the same direction and yet all of that was being done behind the scenes and even the mere inkling of a possibility from somebody like me who didn't know any of this at the time that it could happen was driving people insane so i love the juxtaposition like for me of like okay people like me and you know later on source reporting like Woj and everything else saying this is a possibility but then also you're thinking like oh yeah it makes sense that everybody would be pulling in this direction and that maybe durant was thinking it in the first place just because he wanted something different and and everything else. Yeah, I, I, I think so. And it was a setup. I mean, a lot of people still buy into the idea that the Warriors losing to the Thunder is what set up Kevin Durant coming to the Warriors. And I think a lot of Warriors fans like thinking that because then at least you got something from the incredible searing pain of losing Game 7 in 2016. I don't think that's the case. I don't. I mean, look, I, far be it for me to disagree with Kevin Durant about what Kevin Durant might want to do. Um, not, I, not that I have a history of doing that at all. Um, but I think he comes to the Warriors no matter what. I mean, this was a decision that took months of buildup with massive corp, uh, corporations involved. I don't think this was, uh, you know, flip a coin, make the choice. Or as Kevin Durant said, uh, he basically made the choice that day to come to the Warriors. I don't think that's the case. I think he was coming over there no matter what. And when people say it would have just looked so terrible in the optics and everything else if he had beaten the Warriors and joined them, well, the optics looked bad apparently uh, losing to the Warriors and joining them. I'm not even sure what the difference is. Right. Yeah, it's it's reading the book crystallized it for me a little bit. I mean, the funny part is so a few months after, no, not even a few months, a few weeks after Durant made his decision, I was in Vegas for the Team USA stuff, and, and Pepper Durant, along with a few others, Sam Amick, Ramona Shelburne, and others, on this sort of an idea, he held court for about 30, 45 minutes, I was one of the people in there, and it seemed to me like some of the, you know, he wasn't saying much then, as, as players don't usually, but he kind of got some of those indications that this is kind of where his mind was going anyway, and reading the book, it, it made it even more firm in my mind that that's it's what he wanted and that there was going to be a backlash no matter what. And as you said, the volume of the backlash doesn't really matter that much. And this is the other way I think that LeBron was such a trailblazer for the modern agency, something you get into in the later part of the book in the Maximum Chaos chapter, 
is that that blowback comes, it'll rise and it'll fall, but it's it's just only it's temporary and it's only a small part of the story. And I think that players are less afraid of that now than they used to be. I think Kawhi Leonard is another great example of this. I mean, Kawhi left the championship team. You know that yeah. he's kind of the the counter Durant in that sense of like the what would have happened if KD had done what we talked about, like the idea. Well, maybe if OKC beats the Warriors, I think they win the championship that year. Iguodala yeah. said the same thing. And I, I think that, you know, so Kawhi, it, it is a couple of years later. There are a lot of things. He's not the same type of figure that Kevin Durant is for various reasons. But I think that it is well, we, more more true, we, we, I think. We were still analyzing Kawhi's decisions with a certain degree of naivete as though this was the past and as though these guys actually cared about their teams. They don't for the most part. The teams are vessels for them to expand their brand. Um, and maybe that's logical on their end. And maybe that's how we would view it if we were them. But the problem is that the fans are starting to sense that. And it's giving, it's really destroying the entire noble lie that keeps the, uh, that keeps the sport afloat. And I, I, I think in a way that the book is about knowing too much. We might know too much right now in this modern era, and it is starting to erode our enjoyment of the thing itself. And I think, and maybe I'm flying off in a digression that that's not where you want to go. I'm not sure. But w- with Kevin Durant, he's one of these we know too much guys. Uh, I think that we would appreciate him far more if uh, if he kept him, if he kept us at the arm's length that a lot of celebrities keep us um, or the more successful celebrities at being celebrities. I think that's part of what people loved about Kobe is that, you know, there was a contrived persona in a way. But he also wasn't revealing his insecurities to us. You know, he was kind of giving us um, a celebrity and an idea that he was happy being this vicious competitor and he was fulfilled and we could be fulfilled if we were as motivated as he was and worked as hard as he did and had that Mamba mentality. Um, but he didn't bring us into his, uh, his fears and his insecurities and his human frailties in the way that Kevin Durant did. Um, and I don't think we want that necessarily from our celebrities. We want them to be our gods. We don't want them to be just like us. It's just not what we want. I think it also does depend a little bit on the personality of the person involved. But for for Kobe, I you know covering the late stages of his career, I mean, I started covering the NBA in 09, 2010, so I got to see a lot of it, and I was around Kobe for for various moments, including being there for his jersey retirement. And what struck me most about him, super smart guy, and I, I've said before publicly and privately that he is the player who my opinion on him kind of as a like as a person changed the most covering him because what I realized once I started being around like being in that circumstance and not being a camera camera lens away was he he understood basically by virtue of playing in LA for his entire professional career he understood how every single thing he said was going to be construed and analyzed and everything I covered him you know it was after the Clippers dalliances the the Bulls dalliances all that type of stuff and so he decided to use the platform and this is so was so fitting for what he was doing post career before his tragic passing he was storytelling, and yeah. that was what what Kobe what Kobe decided to do was weave the pieces of the the public things that he was doing, knowing that they were going to get analyzed, that people cared a lot about it, to make this story, which helped him and helped the Lakers build their build themselves up. And I think part of it is that he cared differently about that than Durant does. But another part of it was that he didn't care as much as Durant does, and so he was willing to 
sacrifice a little bit of being quote unquote real for storytelling for myth making and well that's what and that's what we want we want is. them to be storytellers and myth makers that's when we that's when we the royal we loved lebron most was when he thought in terms of narrative and made the move back to cleveland i mean that's an incredible story however you feel about it, however you feel about whether he should have gone back to Dan Gilbert after what Dan Gilbert did. That's such a story that he gave everybody. And well, there's there's a poetry to it also with, with the LeBron thing. This isn't a, this is more the me being a GM nerd and all that type of stuff that him leaving made them bad enough that they could build up the talent that made them good enough for him to come back like that. There's a, there's a part of that that is to me is sort of like beautiful that it was that he, they, they were so dependent on him that then they got, and some of it was also lottery luck and the absolute heist, the, like the trade of last decade where they got the pick that became Kyrie Irving from the Clippers and just an unbelievable deal right before the, uh, right before the, amnesty clause and all that type of stuff but it was i mean lebron yeah it did really all fit together and honestly i mean i think it would have all fit together even if they didn't win a championship but it's so much better that they did from an yeah. perspective uh, well i i think lebron brian windhorse has said that he thinks in terms of narrative and i think he does to a degree but the narratives don't always completely connect um when he's trying to uh convey that he's just a kid from akron um, and humble beginnings and, and whatnot. I mean, I don't think fans look at him and think that. They look, I've never seen a human being be able to do what this guy can do. And maybe it's not fair, but they're not looking at it as a bootstraps, hard scrabble, work ethic situation. They're just, that's just, they're just not. That's not, it's not happening. Um, it's not how they receive it. Um, Kobe seemed to be very savvy about what story he could tell and how people would connect to it. Um, and I think, again, that's what we want. We want you to be Gilgamesh. I mean, we want you to give us some epic myths. That's what we want from you guys. And right now, um, I think it comes from a good place. Uh, a lot of athletes are very aware of their, as you said, platform, platform, platform. And there's almost some sort of guilt associated with it. You know, am I using my platform to good ends? Am I seeing the right political messages? Could I get people doing the right thing? Could I get them voting for the right people? Uh, that might all be very noble, but that's not what we want. That's what some people on Twitter might want, but that's not what the public wants. That's not what the role is for athletes in our society. It's to be, I suppose, in a weird way, um, a role model, as much as Charles Barkley uh, rejected it, not necessarily to lecture us, but to uh, lead us by example of uh, with your strength and your greatness. And Kobe understood that, and he gave the public what the public wanted. Lots more to talk about with Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, but first the message from Keeps. Two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35. 35 is a number that is big to me because it is something I'm turning in less than a month. Uh, But the good news is that with today's advancements in science, Keeps offers proven treatments that can combat the symptoms of hair loss to keep the hair you have at half the cost of your local pharmacy. And an important part of this process is that prevention is so important. Keeps treatments really work. They're up to 90% effective at reducing and stopping further hair loss. And why prevention is important is that The sooner you start using it, the more you'll save. So you act fast. Many men even experience hair regrowth with their treatments. And 
You don't have to go broke to avoid going bald. Keeps offers generic versions of the only two FDA-approved hair loss products out there. Some of you may have tried them before, but probably never for this price. Plus, Keeps now offers a prescription shampoo to keep your scalp healthy too. So if you want to check it out, what you do is you go to keeps.com slash realgm to get your first month of treatment for free, k-e-e-p-s dot com slash realgm. Not only do you get that first month for free, which is awesome, but also tells them that you came from us. And so that means that hopefully they will continue advertising with us in the future. Find out why Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors and nearly 100,000 men trust them for their hair loss prevention medication. Treatments start at just $10 a month, and you can get that first month free if you go to keeps.com slash realgm, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash realgm. Check it out. Another part of that story that I found interesting and well told in the book was the the off-court figures that affect the on-court. So, I mean, in the early part, that is Joe Lacob and Peter Gruber buying the Warriors through this mostly auction, maybe not entirely auction process. And then later on, that's Steve Kerr when he gets the job, how things transition from Mark Jackson to Kerr, how that changes the Warriors, and then also Bob Myers as well. And so I think I know the answer to this, but I still think it's good to have it out there of why you thought it was important to include those stories as a part of the Warriors instead of focusing entirely on, you know, how Durant came and Iguodala and all that sort of stuff. It's not a very player-focused book. Um, I think Durant is a very central epitomizing the modern NBA figure and he gets a lot of focus but part of part of that is that we've dissected the players and we've analyzed the players um for so long I mean this was the most famous team in the in the world for a while um and every iota of what they were into was obsessed over I I remember when Clay Thompson said that he liked Harry Potter and it was an international news story that Clay Thompson liked literally the most popular book in the world. Um, you know, if you were going to guess what book Clay Thompson would be into, it would be Harry Potter. And yet this was a news story. And so I just thought there was more territory there to describe how some of the skeleton of the organization came into being and some of the philosophy and um, these behind the scenes. I like a lot of where those decisions are. And I also like the um, I, I, I like how there's a lot of ego and ambition in terms of building something as big as a massive NBA franchise that wins it all and is world famous. And at the same time, the people full of ego and ambition with all their precious plans who are doing all of this have very little control. (laughs) They have a a lot of power and very little control. And the control they have is often super temporary. Yes. I I think that's a very interesting part of the Durant element of this is that the Warriors went from this very kind of calm ecosystem, very friendly ecosystem to something that was a lot more chaotic. And chaos can be positive, it can be negative, I mean, depend, depending on the circumstance. But what it did do was it, it did take a lot of things. You know, they were they went from being largely a homegrown team that got along and that was winning to a team that had this other element, somebody who had already chosen to leave their team to join them. And yeah, Iguodala had done that too, but it was at kind of a different stage and he was at a different stage in his career, it wasn't peak of his powers, Iguodala at that point. And and so I think that it's it's an interesting kind of part of this. And I mean, you you could say that, you know, it's 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 a winner's curse or anything like that, is that getting the good players then some makes you at least temporarily subject to the whims of those good players. 
But I think the other fascinating element of it is what we would generally classify as luck. And so 2016 is just, I mean, I've written about it a lot. I'll probably write about it more. Such a fascinating confluence because the Warriors did, you could say they did everything right. You know, they got players to take less than their, to take less than their maximum. They also got, you know, they had Steph Curry on that contract, which ended up looking unbelievable and everything else. But they also, they didn't choose the cap spike. The cap spike happened to them. There were things that could have mitigated it that didn't. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on the cap spike a little bit um, as this uh, as this all-powerful thing that helped the Warriors. I think the Warriors get Kevin Durant no matter what. It's just they're not going to have as much. They're not going to have as much around him in terms of role players. Uh, right. They're not going like to have Livingston. Uh, Livingston yeah, in particular, maybe Iguodala. Like it would have been. It would have been a different team. But I mean, so they, they would have been I the favorites in a way, for the title anyway. I, I just think in the way that it's remembered, the cap spike is way overrated um, in terms of the team construction. Yeah, and yeah, that, and that's that's a good. I'll, I'll frame it better. Which is yeah, no, no, no. I'm not. I'm not pushing back on you because no, I know no, no, that no, you're. No. I know that you're very aware of uh, very aware of it because it did help them. Like it did help them. But I think it's it's almost getting popularly remembered as though it's the reason they were able to get Kevin Durant when that was going to happen primarily because Steph Curry was on a discount contract because of the ankle injuries. That's really the biggest thing that helped this become the juggernaut that it was, was that uh, second contract for Steph and the, uh, the the cap spike, you know, it, it sort of kept the core of it together. Um, but yeah. even keeping Livingston on board, it wasn't like Livingston was any anything amazing in that part of his career. Right. I, but, but it was depth. And I mean, getting yeah. getting rotation players, especially when you consider the Warriors drafting around that time. Well, getting, we, 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 we saw how bad the role players could get in, I think, 2019. So, yeah, no, it's yeah. No, but, so, but what I think I think what I'm in terms of it, like the input you said is it's it's completing the sentence. So it's like the cap spike helped the Warriors get Durant without sacrificing as much depth as they would have had to in normal circumstances. Like they could have done it. You're right. Like they could have they, they could have done it. It might have cost Livingston might have cost them even more. Um, maybe maybe even Iguodala has to has to be a part of that, but they would you know I I firmly believe that the sixteen seventeen Warriors are the most talented NBA team in history. Yes, and they're pro they, they might still be that even without the cap spike, but maybe not. Like that's that's they would still have the top end talent. They would have the most top end talent of any team in history, but maybe then the the overall compilation, some of the beautiful game type of stuff gets a little bit different. But yeah, it's it is it is a part of the story, and I mean you think about also how. Not only just adding Durant, but also the accumulation of success that the team had made certain people's jobs a lot harder. Now they're harder in ways that everybody's trying to do. You know, like Masai Ujiri made his job in some ways harder by getting Kawhi Leonard, but also he won a championship and Banners fly forever. But I mean, Kerr went from having to manage Draymond Green to having to manage a whole lot more. Bob Myers went from building a team to keeping it together to basically disassembling it and maximizing it over like three years. And so those sorts of circumstances were very, very different. Well, this is the irony of basketball ops as I see it. And I write about it in the book, not to give too much away. Your job is to succeed in a way that makes you powerless. (laughs) And that's, that's what you're trying to do as a coach and GM is to procure a level of talent or develop a level of talent that you can no longer command in any way because they at that point become far more valuable to the organization than anything you can provide. And now you're 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 at the whim of whatever they want. That is the goal for the basketball ops man um, is to do that, to pull that off. Um, and it's just such a it's such an unusual workplace. 
<laughs> it really is. It's also an unusual – I mean the NBA is such a fascinating workplace for a bunch of different reasons. But one of the other big ones is that you're the one who to some degree decide like the, the interplay of control. And so general managers have a lot of control in most circumstances – and they, you know, and they can do things even that are deeply unpopular. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. But then there are certain circumstances where they just cede a lot of that. And I'm sure, like you were just talking about, that has to be a really hard thing. But at the same point, it's what everybody wants because of what comes with it, unless you get things terribly wrong, which certain teams absolutely have done. Well, and this gets back to the, I think, one of the main ideas, I think, of the book, which is that it doesn't make you happy. Yeah. Flags fly forever, and you're trying to pull this off, and your life is leading up to it. But it just brings you it just brings you a lot of headaches. Plus, you now have the knowledge that there's no magical thing out there that's going to make you happy. That thing doesn't exist, and now you know it. Other people might have the illusion that it, it would have done it for themselves, or it's still in their reach, or something is in their reach. I think when something as powerful as winning a championship doesn't do it for you a lot of people can go into a bit of a tailspin um and i think that's another that's another subplot of all of this but and i wish this was in the book um but it isn't somebody was telling igadala about my book and whether it was true that winning doesn't make you happy and from what i was told andre said it is true but when it goes away you miss it and i think that that's also so. And it's so for all of us in a way um, to broaden it out. Uh, maybe we were complaining. I certainly was. You certainly have your bugaboos about how the NBA is screwing its product up. Um, we wish it was better. Uh, but my God, do we miss it right now? <laughs> really miss it. Right. And I, I think that there is there is a real challenge sometimes. And I run into this a lot in, in my work, both podcasting and writing between wanting things to be better and appreciating them for what they are. And I mm. think the same can be true for players, general managers, coaches, and all that type of stuff. And, and I mean, yeah, I, I, I haven't talked too much with the people in the building about how different, for the, from a Warriors perspective, to bring it back from broad to narrow, that this comes from, from, where, you, from where you were to, to this, is because they went from being the, the, the touchstone for the NBA, arguably the touchstone for professional sports other than soccer probably around the world, to being relevant but not relevant in a way they had been in a long time. We're like, oh my god, they're the worst team in the league, everything else, you know, Curry's injury. And I'm sure there's a part of the building that is just like, well, at least it's nice. Like, you know, it's nice to not have the crush of photographer, of, of media and yeah. photographers and all that type of stuff. But then there's another part. It's like, well, crap, we we didn't we we got this because we're because we aren't good and we aren't like relevant in that sense, and our games they, aren't going to be on national TV as much and all that. There's something Ramona Shelburne said about the new setup, and I mean, I hope she puts it in an article. I hope nobody steals this. I I. I I hope she's okay with me repeating it. I just thought it was so well put um, because she showed up for one of the first, uh, not one of the first games. I think it was after the season had kind of fallen apart um, and Steph Curry gotten injured and she was looking around Chase Center and it's so big. And she said, yeah, the last place was almost too small for that team. And this new place, it's too big for this team. And I thought that was just so well put. You, you just can feel tumbleweeds blowing across uh the, uh the the floor of chase center sometimes not not actually i mean people still attend the games but it just feels 
it just feels well they still attend the games before the uh, the pandemic broke out i should say but it, but it just feels like this is a stage that is set for a team that is uh, larger than life and instead uh, the g league superstar showed up yeah it, it, it's definitely a challenge and, and likely that will only be a one-year aberrational story but it is still such a strange coda for this part of it. It's the, the whole story isn't over, of course, but to go from one extreme to the other is pretty remarkable. And, you know, it, it kind of, to me, it reminds me a little bit of um, when I, uh, I don't know, this was true of a lot of my friends when I was in college, you know, I, I went to school away from home and I it seemed like every, like I would go through finals and everything and I'd be rolling, rolling, rolling and I'd come back and A, I would sleep all the time, but I would almost always get sick. And what it was was kind of the idea that you had all this stuff that was accumulating and accumulating and you just went through it because you had nothing else to do but go through and then once that became your biggest problem then all of a sudden all those things became too much to bear in a way yeah yeah i think that's well put i mean i think anybody who has beaten a video game can relate to the plight of the uh (laughs) can relate to the plight of the warriors is another thought i'm taking it back to in terms of uh the the, nothing makes you happy i know I'm, I'm, i'm going back um, I'm just thinking that I, is, I could draw, I, I could draw an analogy here. So, um, okay, I, okay. I, I grew up, you know, high school and all that playing the, the GTA games. And technically speaking, like you're usually, they try to structure it so that in the early part you're struggling and you're, you're hustling and you know, dollars matter more and you're getting all that. And then at the end of it, you have like basically enough fake video game money to do whatever you want within the world. And it's an open world game. But generally when I get to that point, I don't really want to do that much with it because I've done so much and it's like, well, now I can do everything. What, what's the point? <laughs> you know, kind of that yeah. sort of thing. There's a degree of that in this too. Well, I, I here's something. Um, and we don't usually talk about this. Uh, we're usually talking about the league um, in terms of what trades can be made, how a team can get better. But is Adam Silver's job when all of this settles and is wrapped up as far as the pandemic is concerned to find a way to make these players happy? I mean, is that sort of the job? Is that even possible? And if you accept the premise, because Adam Silver believes this, he said this publicly, that players right now are far less happy than the players of yesteryear. And if you accept a secondary premise that I will posit, that it is making the league less popular, that its biggest stars are so transparently miserable, then is your job as commissioner um, and for the owners overall to find a way to make these guys less miserable? And how the hell do you do that? How is that even possible? It's it's really hard. I, I think that, you know, giving... I mean, it's a weird thing to consider because I'm thinking about you and Nate and everything you talk about um, and the great job that you guys do. But it's weird to think about it's something where you guys will get more listeners to that venture of yours um, if players get happier. <laughs> but I firmly believe that's the case. Yeah, I think I think there is a virtuous cycle in there to a degree. I mean, you could think about the Magic Johnson, you know, like the joy he played the game with. And obviously joy is, was a word that was a touchdown for the Warriors for a while. And I think there is a part of that that's infectious. But I think I think to a degree for me, the like connecting that with ratings, I'm not as willing to do that as, as you are, because I believe more that the product is the product. But there are times when those fissures do spill out onto the floor, or it's everything else. I think that really, the I think so- it's a, it's just a gestalt. It's just a, it's a cumulative, it's a cumulative thing. Of this goes back to the celebrity and what players are selling to us. Um, we need to believe that this is glory. We are renting 
your self-esteem. Um, we are investing in your success and we are imagining ourselves as you when you succeed so we can feel a little glimmer of it. That is a lot of what the investment is. That's a lot of why we're into what we're into. I know growing up watching the San Diego Chargers, um, when Junior Seau tragically uh, took his life and was so miserable, I thought to myself, this is a weird thing to keep cheering on because if this is the end of the road for these guys, um, then I don't, I don't even know what I'm really investing in. I don't even really know what, 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 I'm, what I'm into. Now, with football, it's a little bit different. I don't think people... It's been shown that maybe the fans don't care so much. It's not what they're really getting out of it. But I think for NBA players, with the level of individual celebrity that they have, I think that's a that's a part of it. And if the players seem like they're having an incredible time and they're very connected to the sport and they're connected to uh, the franchises they represent, I think that that is a big factor in making it more popular. And you know, happiness attracts people. Um, Steph Curry, very comfortable in his own skin, very happy generally as a person. I think that's attractive to the customer. And right now they are projecting misery, misery. I mean, think about it where, you know, what does it do for the league that Kyrie Irving joins a really good Celtics team in a major media market with a lot of people, Northeast, um, passionate fan base, and is just pouty, miserable uh, the entire time, and then just leaves. Like that's not that's not good. That's not leaving good vibes in that particular area as far as what this sport is all about. They're going to look to a different sport. I think this is happening overall. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know how to change it. I wouldn't want Adam Silver's job. Um, I think if he didn't already, uh, if he wasn't already bald, he would be now. Um, it's, so, it's, yeah. Sorry if I'm getting, you know, digressive, no, I, but I yeah. Get, I get where you're coming from, and I do think that there is a section of the fan base that sees, that sees it the way that you do. I have, and, and so the challenge for me is whether I'm representative. You know, like, I think that's something, yeah. I, it's something I think about a lot. And for me, I, and I've written about this a little bit, but probably should more, is that I see sports more as an alternate form of entertainment. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 unpredictability of it versus like a scripted movie or anything else. And you could talk about, you know, like different things like professional wrestling or reality TV, trying to blur the lines between scripted and not. And, and sometimes people finding out things like how, like how that things are more scripted than they thought and they get mad. And anyway, I'm not going to digress on that, but what for me, where the focus for silver is, yeah, he has a degree that they're, you know, they are, that, that they should try to make all the people who are within their orbit make their lives better because I think that does make it better. That's the virtuous circle I was talking about. But then there's another part where I think that it's about the product itself. And I think that the, we're, you know, like, so one of the examples, and I'm, I'm working on a piece about this is, you know, like, this is a very small technical thing, but like intentional fouls that stop fast breaks. Well, if there were more dunks and all that, that'd be more fun for people. You wouldn't get the stoppages. You wouldn't have you, the Ethan Sherwood Strauss favorite clear path violation uh, reviews replay review fix, if you can fix all that and so i think what the league one of the things that the league should be thinking about during this time is that you know the, this idea of like I, i've used the phrase like you know it's obviously it's connected with us of a more perfect union the idea that what can we do to make our product better and 
player happiness can certainly be a part of that. Though I think to a degree, the more you give people a voice, the more nuanced that voice might be. And once you give them that ability through social media and everything else, not that the NBA did that, but you know, celebrity did that and, and technology did that. Mm. But there's there's an element of it that you can't that you can't change back. But doing things like making it, you know, making the league structures the best they can be. Going back to one of you, one of our favorites in the long time you've been on good, Jeff good, sy- good systems get good results. Good systems get good results. Reducing the number of games in the season so there are fewer injuries and so guys are more fresh and that the grind is a little bit less on them. Maybe doing tweaks to the playoff system, like all sorts, like focus to me. There, one of the biggest problems for me, and I mean, the, if, incidentally, the NFL would be would be a, a great poster child for this. If were it not so popular that they might not have to think about it, which is, I think that too often successful things don't think about how they could be better. They're just like, hey, we're successful, and yes, that's where that. And you know, so like you, a, an entity, whether it's a company or a partnership or anything else, like, and this is well, something I Nate and I Nate and I focus on a lot. Is it's like. The things that made you successful will be a part of your success in the future, but another part of it is that the the feistiness and everything else, and so you don't get into the survivor the survivorship bias and everything. Yeah, else you, like you you become a victim of your own success. You become a victim of your own success, and I think that that is the mentality that teams. I mean, we've seen successful teams do this, and I mean, this was a part of the the light year stuff with Joe Lacob. Though I you know have my own thoughts on the validity of that. And everything else, but it's this idea that the old paths aren't going to necessarily work anymore, and that perpet- maybe this is just because I'm a perpetual analyst. But the idea that perpetual analysis, self analysis, critical analysis of like of everything will make things better, and I think that's something that I think you're right. I, so I think you're right, and uh, well, you're right in the sense that regardless of whether there are forces outside of the NBA that are contributing to how unhappy the players are, the NBA can't do anything about those forces. So it needs to focus on what it can do and maybe in just doing what it can do better, it can facilitate a better way. And, um, the players connect better. The games are better. The product is better. Um, you're all about positive feedback loops. I know. So, um, maybe that's true. There's also possibility that it's all just beyond them, that something bizarre has happened in our cultural moment, that the social media technology that – and I think I, I write about this in the book – that the league went just full tilt into social media and was getting praised up and down for being – the Twitter league and Jack Dorsey was talking about NBA Twitter and all the players needed to tweet. And that might've been a poison. That might've been something that actually didn't help the league because the technology itself exposes you to, um, these ephemeral, uh, dopamine hits and you're chasing your own narcissism. And it's not necessarily what builds fulfillment and connectedness of a team. And, I don't know how to reverse that process necessarily. And so I look at it and I say, I agree with everything you said. And still, I fear that what's happening overall and what's hurting the NBA might be something that they really just can't do anything about that. It's all and it's all getting too big for them. I mean, that's what's insane is that um, there are forces the NBA has to grapple with right now that we weren't even really considering, such as trying to have a foot in China and trying to have a foot in the United States as these countries seem to be on a collision course. Um, actually, that would make it easier as these countries drift away is the one that's more difficult. Uh, decoupling as a major China honk 
uh, Henry Paulson says, who apparently is, I guess, befriended Adam Silver and talked about these things. Um, I mean, that's a crazy thing to try to do. So they're trying to do all of that. All these other factors are making it very difficult to just keep the league running in a way that's copacetic. It's hard. And I mean, not to get too meta, but you get you get into these things that the world is in many ways more complicated by how open it is, and that it yeah. you know, when it, the the positive the positive feedback and you know like we can each tie this to like if we wanted to to our own Twitter feeds, everybody can in their own lives. It's a lot easier to get praise, and it's also a lot easier to get tr- criticism and to drown in either now. And I think that well, the world is well, just this more is the victim, and it's victim of your own success stuff again. Where this China situation for the NBA is a massive wrench in the gears um, that only happened because the NBA got so successful as to expand into China. Uh, It would be far easier for them to manage anything they need to manage um, after this uh, disease passes, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, If they didn't, if they didn't succeed so much that they were getting hundreds of millions of dollars in a far flung country, they were able to accomplish that. And so now they're now they're not going to want to let it go. And they built all these presumptions off getting that money. I mean, that's something to consider, Danny. I know you're considering it and I don't even know how to really think about it is how much money is the NBA going to lose when you combine um, not getting the China money potentially um, possibly in perpetuity. I know that, uh, the league and everybody seems sanguine about it. I'm not. I tend to see those two countries on a collision course. I hear Adam Silver talk about the situation, and I know he has to say what he says, but it just sounds absurd to me, the idea that maybe uh, the NBA can be this form of higher diplomacy to connect the world um, and to help China and the United States work together, I believe is what he said when, when talking about this, which I'm, I'm sorry, buddy, but read a newspaper. I mean, that's not, that's not happening. That's not happening. And so, you know, it's just, it's just a, it's a crazy situation. It's, it's a crazy situation that they have on their hands. And I, I look at it, um, you know, out of on Bismarck, famously, uh, the great Prussian statesman who kind of built up what became modern Germany and had all these intricate alliances and would uh, join up with one country to beat the other country. And then when he would join up with that country to beat the country that he had just joined up with. Um, and it was said that he had built this intricate system that nobody else could run. And then when he died, it brought about disaster and, you know, Germany going into World War One and everything else. And I feel that way sometimes with David Stern, you know, was David Stern so successful and expansive that he kind of left Adam Silver and all these other new money owners, just a just a situation that was completely legible. I think there's a part of that. I think there's also a part that is just things are changing and it's harder to get it's hard to get your your arms around everything now. And so it, w- it wasn't as much that it was Stern was keeping together. It's that it would have been hard for him to do too. It's just that he, he mm. got out at the right time. I think there's a lot of that, but I think to me, the way that you, the way to respond to this is just the way that I kind of try to handle things in my own life is do the things you can do and do the best on the things that you can't control and just hope and, and, and hope that hope that doing, you know, smart processes make for good results and that that will raise boats enough that it'll work. And, and the other reason why you do that is because it's all you can do. And I think that worrying about, you know, where the revenue is going and everything like that. Yeah. It affects the bottom line, everything else, but the NBA is also very profitable right now. And remember that half of all the losses go, to the players too so it's not like this is all coming out of the checkbooks it's not like we're going to see 
Steve Ballmer and the bus family out out on the streets because asking asking for some of the stimulus package right. um like that's well that's... I, you know i i don't think so but man i mean this current economic situation it's it's almost like why even consider how it wipes out the nba if it's wiping out everything else right it, it seems like that that doesn't yeah, but that, that, it, that makes it, it makes it all the better of a time to just figure everything out and and yeah. take use you know use this hiatus for for the small well, I'll, tell, I'll tell you I'll tell you uh, this is something nobody's talking about um but you know what's not good for the everyone right now is focusing on the profits that the NBA is losing right now and for good reason they're immense and it's unprecedented to just have a season stop like this but I'll tell you what's also not so good um for the NBA is long term for the major corporations that are going to be bidding on your national TV contract uh, to have suffered incredible losses and not be flush with cash. Uh, that's the other dynamic. Well, um, yeah, I see. I, I, I disagree yeah. a little bit because I really? think that what's the flush with cash part, these are investment opportunities. And I think what's going to happen is people are going to realize how much they wanted live sports in their life. Mm. And, and that the, you know, it's, it's all about the number of households in the share. And I think those things are, are going to go up temporarily or more significantly. I think that, you know, I, I talked with somebody recently about how part of what has made this personally very hard for me. And again, my problems are far smaller than most who are dealing with this. And I'm, I'm appreciative of that every day. But part of it is that the, some of the things that I would use to cope with everything that's happening, those things aren't there any, aren't there right now. Yeah. For the same reasons that that we have, I, that I we have to cope. I think that's one of the reasons why I just keep seeing on social media people are talking about how they've gotten into cooking. And I think that's one of the reasons for that is you can find a bunch of videos of that, and it's a little bit it's it it, it takes the place of the neutral that yeah, sports it's, were. It's the, it's the things it's the things that you can do, and and you know cooking is another kind of you know it's it can make you better whether it's healthier or eating better or whatever it's going to be and. It generally it it can also like it's something people are passionate about. So sometimes that passion can be connected. So yeah, I think a lot of those a lot of those go together. And I think that and this could kind of be a closing thought, if you will. If the, is this that I think that it's going to be very interesting, especially because we're going to see this just rush of entertainment, sports, and everything else as soon as as soon as the things are allowed again. And I think that it's going to be fascinating to see how all of it fits together because I think that it's going to be this just like endorphin rush and mm. how everybody manages that and also understanding, you know, we've gotten into this with the China and everything else. It's just like also understanding that endorphin rush is going to be temporary too. And yeah. It's going to be, it's going to be this really interesting well, challenge. It, it, that one, it also might be just a cautious reenter. You know, the NBA might, might get back into this in the way you go into a really hot jacuzzi just because, there will be a lot of fear surrounding congregating so many people in one area and people will wonder, is this going to work? Is this safe? And a lot of it, I think, is going to be determined by when the NBA comes back and just it can all be overtaken by the news. You know, I see that these owners have a plan and, you know, the playoffs are going to happen in the summer. And hey, so what they should be doing. You know, you got to you got to come up with a plan. You got to come up with an idea. But all those plans can be wiped away by the virus and by the news. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying anything particularly profound, but I mean, it's, it just is. We, we are at the mercy of something right now, and we just don't know. We don't know the level to which we are, and I, I don't think anybody can really predict it. 
I don't think they can, but one of the things that people can do while they while they deal with this is, is read your excellent book. It'll be out soon enough for everybody else. Oh, yeah. I'm happy enough to have already read it. But thank you so much for taking the time. Um, thank you for having me, Danny. It was a, It's fun to get meta with you. And uh, yeah, April 14th, The Victory Machine. Uh, it's a quarantine dream. God damn it. Uh, that's that's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't know how else to sell it. I'm just hoping I'm hoping that some people can get some entertainment um, in these uh, so- socially isolated days from it. Thanks again to Ethan Sherwood-Strauss for taking the time to come on. You can read his work at The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at Sherwood-Strauss, S-H-E-R-W-O-O-D-S-T-R-A-U-S-S. But most importantly, you can read his work in The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. It's coming out from Public Affairs Books, released on April 14th. Whether you're into the Warriors or not, I think it is a great way to think about how NBA teams are built, all of the different factors that come into it, and how things can fall apart in full or in part. And I really loved the way that he approached the subject matter. And even for somebody like me who was around this team, who covered the team for the entirety of the range that he's talking about, who wrote a book that in in part covered the range that he talked about, I still learned plenty. And that means you will too. And Ethan is a fantastic writer. He's one of my absolute favorites in the business. So give it a read. I I poured through it over a few days right at the beginning of the shelter in place and absolutely loved it. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player of your choosing. Great if it's Apple Podcasts. Totally understand if it's not. You can also leave a review both places if you want to. Word of mouth, extremely important, you know, telling people, hey, this episode, this show was good. Even though Real Jam Radio has been around a long time, there are still a lot of people who don't know about it. That's the way this works. Also, subscribing, downloading every episode, extremely important because that's how our numbers can stay up. And as I've said numerous times on this show and others, if people keep downloading and listening to the show, then advertisers will stay on, hopefully, and we can keep doing it. And I love doing the show. I hope it's a way for you to separate from everything that's going on. It is that for me as well. And so that that allows us to continue going. And the single most important thing for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. For this episode, that is Keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash Real GM. You get your first month of treatment for free, which is fantastic keeps.com slash real gm as usual real gm radio will be back each week i have a plan for a couple of different weeks um and you'll see you'll see where it goes you know it's and also of course you can check out dunked on nate and i are recording still five times a week going strong and doing some fun stuff Uh, we're actually doing a lot of our shows now we're also showing them as we record it on on twitch if you're interested in that um so you can kind of see how the sausage is made a little bit um more than we've ever really shown before something we're trying out during the during the hiatus and we've done some really fun episodes recently redrafting 2015 top 10 players in the league picking our olympic teams and we have we have plenty of ideas we're going to keep going throughout this just like real gm radio is if you have any feedback on this show good bad or indifferent danny larue nba at gmail.com is the way to reach out to me if you take the time to write it i will take the time to read it i try to respond but i'm not amazing at that i have i still despite everything have a lot of irons in the fire you can also of course check out my work at the athletic have a, uh, a new piece on the 2020 big men free asian class that is out now and then 
there will be companion pieces on the point guards and wings coming out in the next little while have some cool collaborative stuff and then i have like six other pieces in process right now i have time to write so i i am absolutely doing so hopefully you all are being as safe and responsible as you can as citizens as family members as everything else and reaching out to the people that you care about that are not close by and even if they are close by but you don't get to see them very often um it is a challenging time and hopefully all of us do what we can to make it less challenging for the people around us and what i found is that when i do that it makes it easier for me too so hopefully you see things the same way um the victory machine is another way to occupy some of your mental energy ethan's book is fantastic you should really check it out so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day 